Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Mark Matthews, Head of Research in Asia at Bank Julius Baer, and welcome to our weekly Beyond Markets podcast. The big story is that in rising 1.2% on Friday, the S&P 500 index went to a new all-time high after weeks of bumping up against the previous peak. And what's interesting is that this happened despite the 10-year Treasury yield being back above 4%, and despite the dollar index being at 103. They were both lower than that a month ago. The reason why they're higher than a month ago is because the market's less sure the Fed will be cutting rates as fast as it thought. A few officials cautioned rates will come down, but in an orderly way, and maybe not so soon. So a month ago, the futures market was pricing in the Fed funds rate in January next year at 3.62%. Now it sees the Fed funds rate in January next year at 3.82%. Well, frankly, there's not a very big difference between those two numbers. And anyway, the stock market doesn't seem to care because people don't seem to be as worried about the economy as they were. If you look at Google searches for the word recession, they keep coming down. So if rates don't come down quite as soon or fast as the futures market thought, well, is that really such a problem as long as they are coming down, which the Fed has pretty much told us is what's going to happen. So with the stock market, the NASDAQ 100 index, the technology heavy index, was the first one to manage to break above its previous high. That was actually in December last year, but we didn't pay much attention to it at the time because it didn't last. It went back below the all-time high, but last week and the week before last, it rose strongly again, enough to push it definitively into new all-time high territory. The biggest news in the markets was actually something that happened here in Asia on Thursday when Taiwan Semiconductor said its revenues should grow up to 25% this year, driven by strong demand for artificial intelligence applications. That's a welcome change from the 4.5% drop in revenues that Taiwan Semi had last year as customers were still working off inventories from what they'd bought in the post-pandemic rebound. The CEO of Taiwan Semi said, and I'll quote him here, demand has suddenly increased since the fourth quarter of last year, and almost all AI innovators are working with Taiwan Semi. Apple is one of Taiwan Semi's top customers, and also on Thursday, Bank of America upgraded its shares to a buy based on a series of earnings revisions it sees coming, driven by artificial intelligence. And NVIDIA is one of Taiwan Semi's top customers, too. Its share price is up 23% so far this year alone. That means it's added $200 billion in value this year alone, which is the same value as the entire Philippine stock market. It's now nearing a total market cap of $1.5 trillion, and it's a hair away from having a larger market cap than the entire energy sector. In fact, NVIDIA isn't the only semiconductor company whose stock is doing well. As a group, they were up 8% last week, and in relative terms versus the S&P, semis have broken a resistance level they failed to break in December 2021 and again in June of 2023. That means this bull market is still very much a technology-driven story, and so much for the idea that we'd get rotation away from big tech into the rest of the market. That kind of looked like it was starting to happen in the last two months of 2023. The S&P Equal Weight Index is still 5% below its all-time high. The Value Line Geometric Index of 1,700 equally weighted names is 17% below its all-time high. 
But that doesn't mean they can't go to new highs too. If results are good, the stocks that aren't at all-time highs could get to them. Although we might have to wait a bit for that to happen. Only two out of three of the 50 S&P 500 companies that have reported their fourth quarter results so far beat expectations, compared to the 10-year average beat weight, which is three out of four. That's mainly due to banks, who were early reporters in the earnings season. Bank of America's net income fell 50%, JP Morgan paid a big fee linked to the regional bank rescue last year, and Citi reported a loss. This week, 75 companies will be reporting their results, so we'll have a better picture of the broader market by Friday. But the street doesn't really seem to be expecting great things for the fourth quarter of last year in general. It looks for earnings growth of just 2.2%, about the same as the third quarter of last year. Then for the first quarter results for this year, those will start coming out in early April, things should start to look better because the consensus expects a 3.8% lift in earnings and then 4.8% in the second quarter, 5.1% in the third quarter. So even if for all of 2024 there will be better earnings growth, it probably won't be visible until around the summer. And that's why we recommend continuing to focus on quality growth stocks, that means technology, and adding some lagging defensive stocks like in biotechnology. Then around the middle of the year, as investors start anticipating a new economic upcycle and they see it coming through in earnings, we think there should be an opportunity to rotate into some of the more cyclical parts of the market. And then if the equal weighted indices can make new highs, that would put the entire market in a better technical position. Still, we should be thankful for what we already have, and what I said at the beginning is we already have an S&P 500 index at a new all-time high 24 months and two weeks after the last all-time high on the 3rd of January 2022. To the everyday investor, this is psychologically a very positive thing, and it's not a good idea to sell into a move back to a new all-time high in the S&P 500 when you look back in history. There were 14 previous times since 1950 when a new all-time high occurred after a lengthy hiatus of 12 months or more. And it led to good performance over the next year in all 14 times, with one exception, which was the global financial crisis in 2007. But even including that time, the average return of all 14 12 months later for the S&P was 15% higher. Briefly on politics, on average, since 1972, the market tends to do well both in the six months leading up to and the six months following presidential elections, regardless of the winner's ideology. But since politics are going to be coming up more frequently in conversations as the primaries unfold, I'll just say for the record, it's not looking great for the Democrats at this point in time. This week is the New Hampshire primary election for both parties. A victory in the New Hampshire Republican primary on Tuesday would give Nikki Haley momentum ahead of the next primary in her own home state of South Carolina. But a victory in New Hampshire seems unlikely for her because the polls are putting Donald Trump at 48% versus 34% for her. And now Ron DeSantis has dropped out and endorsed Trump. If New Hampshire, which is considered a centrist state, goes to Trump, then we can be pretty sure the other states will go to Trump too in the Republican primaries. And then we could also be pretty sure that Joe Biden will be nominated as the Democrat Party's candidate at their convention in August because he has said that if Donald Trump is on the Republican ticket, he will run for office again for the Democrats. 
Biden's aides realize he has a public relations problem. He's polling badly versus Trump. He doesn't have the same charisma. He looks a bit older. He's presided over a period of high inflation. So the Washington Post reported on Saturday that his aides have been putting together a plan to differentiate him on economic policy by going after companies and the rich. That means the stock market will like Donald Trump even more if he wins in November. And Boris Johnson wrote in an op-ed in the Daily Mail last week, I'll just quote him here, reasonable people can see Trump is not actually the would-be dictator the Democrats keep portraying him to be, and they've come to resent the legalistic ruses to axe him as a candidate. The more frenzied the effort to cancel him, the stronger he becomes, the more bitterly his enemies wage lawfare against him, the more unstoppable he seems to be. If you don't like Boris Johnson or the Daily Mail, well, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, said the same thing, basically, at the World Economic Forum in Davos last week. He said, and I'll quote him here, I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about Make America Great Again. This negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. And Diamond gave Trump credit for his policy record. He said, and I'll quote him again, take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO, kind of right on immigration. He grew the economy quite well. Trade tax reform worked. He was right about some of China, and that's why Trump supporters voted for him. Speaking of China, and to round things off, it's the only market in the world trading at more than two standard deviations below its long-term average valuation. We haven't seen these kind of valuations since the European crisis in 2011, or the global financial crisis in 2009. Last week, President Xi Jinping said China should, and I'll quote, actively cultivate a unique Chinese financial culture, pursuing righteousness over self-interest without seeking undue profit. And the Communist Party is taking a direct role in the running of universities across the country. For example, the party committee at Tsinghua University issued a notice on the 14th of January that its office had merged with the office of the president of the university to form a new party committee office that will run that university. And that's being replicated nationwide in a move called One Institution, Two Brands, which will integrate party politics into the core curriculum of Chinese universities. And in a sign that China's becoming more isolated from the rest of the world, Caixin reported last week that Huawei has launched the latest version of its own operating system that won't support Android apps. It can only accommodate apps specifically developed for it. That means after people upgrade to the latest operating system, they won't be able to use Android apps. Huawei has by far the largest smartphone market share in China. It doesn't so matter much in China itself because you can't access WhatsApp and Facebook and most overseas apps in China anyway. But when Chinese people go overseas with Huawei phones, their phones won't be able to handle Android apps if they upgrade to the new operating system. Outside of China, Huawei users can still use the old operating system, but when Android apps get upgraded, and that's constantly happening, they won't be able to use them on their Huawei phones. There's about 150,000 Huawei users here in Singapore and many, many others in countries around the world. It's going to be a problem for them. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. Thank you for listening. We'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. 
If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.